Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 87th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, President of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm John Simic, Vice President of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is President Trump's Lawyers and Craig Ball's The Perfect Preservation Letter. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsors. We would like to thank our sponsor, SiteLock, the global leader in website security solutions. Learn more at sitelock.com forward slash legal forward slash digital detectives. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, PINow.com. If you need a private investigator you can trust, visit PINow.com to learn more. Our guest today is Craig Ball, a Texas lawyer living it up in New Orleans. Craig is a peripatetic presence in legal education around the globe. He's tried lawsuits in Houston for 25 years before joining the law faculty at the University of Texas in Austin and limiting his practice to serving courts as a special master in computer forensics and electronic discovery. Craig has delivered more than 2,000 speeches and papers on forensic technology, and he blogs on topics of interest to lawyers and litigation support at ballinyourcourt.com. As usual, it's great to have you, Craig. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to work with you and Sharon. Well, I'm delighted to have you back uh, too, Craig. It's it's always a ball. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I actually didn't know that was coming out of my mouth. Would you tell us, please, uh, because, you know, this this whole podcast actually originated because I blogged about your blog uh, and you had a blog post called The Sincerest Form of Flattery. Um, can you tell us what prompted that particular post? Yes, I'd be happy to, Sharon. And thank you, as always, for blogging about my blog. And I look forward to blogging about <laughs> your blog, blogging about my blog. That post is such an incestuous relationship. So that post uh, grew out of uh, a missive I got from other members of the uh, Texas State Bar Computer and Technology section. And it's a group of, of folks on the council, very uh, tech savvy for many years. And they kind of served as de facto leaders of helping Texas lawyers stay up to date with uh, computer technology and law practice. So one of my colleagues sent around this notice and said, hey, this letter that President Trump's lawyer sent around trying to get the publisher and author of the recent Fire and Fury book and article uh, in The New Yorker is a very good missive about preserving electronically stored information. Well, you know, I, of course, piqued my interest. So I tracked down the letter and started reading it and reading it. And after the usual, you know, you are a terrible person and your mother <laughs> should be ashamed of you and we're going to sue you for all this start stuff, I started recognizing the text. And I thought, well, that's funny. This is familiar. And I, I looked at it. And, and mind you, we're talking about it's an 11-page letter. And so I'm talking about roughly the last six pages or so of the letter, more than half the letter. And I realized it dawned on me, uh, this, not only do I think this is really well written, <laughs> uh -huh, but I realized I wrote it. 
And I mean, not just a little bit of it, but I'd written essentially six pages of this letter verbatim, including whatever odd mistakes I'd made in punctuation or weird grammatical constructions. And I'd written it, it took me a while because I'd written it before the federal rules of civil procedure, earliest rules on e-discovery, because it comes out of an article I wrote more than 12 years ago called The Perfect Preservation Letter. And so I was uh, shocked to see my work adopted verbatim uh, by the president of the United States. This president. <laughs> well, well, Craig, I, I know, I know you you get upset fairly easily, but were you all all cranked up that they were using pages essentially your your own work without attribution? It, it didn't have a byline on this letter. I'm I'm sure, right? Uh, no, there was there was no my, my <laughs> copyright was not respected. But let's be frank. No, I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't bothered by that a bit. It it was an article that I'd written so many years ago for the express purpose of helping other lawyers use it as a drafting aid. So I certainly expected that people would judiciously borrow from the language that I'd put forward. And as it was applicable to their case, and as it was temporally relevant, um, that they would use it. So I was flattered that they used it. Um, and I'm still flattered uh, that the president of the United States, who never it seems to be able to listen to anything anybody proposes that he do or say was willing to borrow six pages of my work verbatim. Well, I, I think you've already suggested to us something about what the president's lawyers should have done differently, but go ahead and explain it further. Well, I, as I say, it's, it's not that I'm bothered that they used the language. I guess I'm, I'm, if I'm bothered by anything, I'm bothered that they didn't take to heart the language that accompanied it, which was rather important to me. And back all those days ago, uh, years ago, I, I said, you won't find the perfect preservation letter in any form book. You have to build it custom crafted from a judicious mix of technical boilerplate and fact specific direction. So what I was saying even back then, and we're talking about very early days, again, before the federal rules governing electronically stored information, uh, there was nothing out there about preservation letters. So that's why I wrote the article and that's why I put forward the language. The mistake that I think they made uh, had nothing to do with attribution. It's that they didn't think about what the issues were in the case and tailor their preservation to the things they really needed. They just used a scattershot approach that is disproportionate to what we should be doing today and considering the issues, the amount in controversy, the position of the various parties and so forth, all of those things laid out in the federal rules. But more than that, they failed to update it in recognition of all that's transpired in modern information technology over the course of the last dozen plus years. I mean, let me ask it back to you. What form of communication do you associate it most with the president of the United States? Well, obviously, he's a Twitter <laughs> Twitter user, right? <laughs> Twitter didn't even exist back yeah. when you wrote your letter, Craig. <laughs> of course not. So tweets and, and other forms of social networking are conspicuous by their absence. If you're going to be uh, asking people to preserve things, why would you ask them to preserve Lotus one, two, three, 
which was still in existence and in wide use back when I wrote that, but has fallen off the edge of the earth. Why would you fail to include all the new forms of communications like social networking, all the specialized forms of collaboration and messaging that exist today? So where I think they failed was in not thinking about what they were using and not updating it to a modern computing environment and a modern communications uh, environment. Do you think they were just under the gun time-wise? Is is that why somebody would, you know, I don't want to make it sound like they were stealing something because your language was open and for people to use, but uh, lifting lifting that language, and they should have known how old it was at least, uh, uh, were they just trying to get something together and scrambling? Well, I, I can't begin to uh, speculate as to what was going through the minds of the individual lawyers. And to be completely fair, uh, they may not have stolen it from me, and I, I use the word stolen tongue-in-cheek, they may have borrowed it years ago in creating a form for their firm, or they may have borrowed it from another lawyer who took it verbatim. So I can't say that they went directly to my, even though it's my article verbatim, I can't say that that was their origin. They could have stolen it from somebody who else had stolen it, who'd stolen it from somebody else. And isn't that what we do in the law? Does anybody ever write very much originally? If we did, we would never say things like wherefore premises considered. Who says stuff like that? Well, do you think the fact that they didn't have to do so much work because they didn't appropriately update it diminished the size of their bill at all? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm not going <laughs> there. The question. I'm not going there. I have no <laughs> doubt that they billed no time at all for simply hitting print on this. What lawyer would ever charge for drafting something that they pulled from a form book? That would be unethical. <laughs> okay, you're... <laughs> you're you're having too much fun. Okay, children, it's yours next. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> Craig, in, in case our, our, our listeners aren't, aren't aware of this, can you tell us, tell them uh, what the difference is between a preservation letter and a legal hold notice? The way I use those two terms, John, is a legal hold notice is what you send to your client to tell your client of the need to preserve certain forms of documents and electronically stored information in anticipation of litigation or in connection with uh, existing litigation. That's, you know, I represent you, you need to preserve this for this litigation. That's a well-known activity uh, to in-house and corporate counsel. The preservation letter is something you send to your opponent or your opponent's counsel if counsel has entered the case, where you set out your expectations in terms of notifying them of those forms of electronically stored information that you expect your opponent to preserve. So one is something you send to your your own client. One is something you send to your opponent, and they have very different uh, effects legally. Well, thanks for that. Uh, Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. At least 80 of the 100 biggest law firms in the country have been hacked since 2011. Protect your firm and your clients from cyber attacks with SiteLock. Their industry-leading cloud-based suite of website security solutions includes website scanning, web application firewall, including DDoS mitigation, and 24-7, 365 U.S.-based customer support. 
Give your firm and your clients peace of mind knowing their information is secure. Learn more at sitelock.com forward slash legal forward slash digital detectives. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is President Trump's Lawyers and Craig Ball's The Perfect Preservation Letter. Our guest today is Craig Ball, a Texas lawyer and renowned e-discovery and digital forensics expert. Well, Craig, I think we had all too much fun in that first segment. So, so let's be, this time we're going to be fairly serious and drain most of the humor from this. Tell us a little bit about what the preservation letter accomplishes. And, and does it create a legal duty? Well, you could read the federal rules and state rules of procedure cover to cover, and you wouldn't find any reference to preservation letters. So no, it doesn't create a legal duty. The legal duty to preserve information is a creature of the common law, Sharon. And it goes back many, many years to, you know, early, early, jolly old England and so forth. Uh, The need for all of us to preserve the evidence available to us to assist the courts in reaching justice. What the preservation letter does do is it closes the door of an opponent saying, oh, gee, oh, gosh, oh, golly, if I'd only known that you wanted us to preserve emails or texts or other items of electronically stored information, we could have done it, but we didn't anticipate that. And oh, by the way, even if you told us it's too burdensome, it's... uh, disproportionate to the needs of this case. So we aren't going to do it, but in any event, it's gone. So the the point here is the preservation letter not only says, hey, these things may be relevant to this case and we expect you to act responsibly and meet your obligations under the law to preserve them, but I use it as a further means to make sure that they understand how to do it in ways that I would find appropriate and acceptable, and in particular, how to preserve certain kinds of of metadata and forms of the information that, in my experience, I know I'm going to be asking for and will be a much richer and more reliable form of information. So it's about giving notice to to prevent people from using the ignorance defense against spoliation down the road, It's about reducing the costs of preservation by showing them the most expedient and narrowest ways to preserve information so that if there were ever a cost shifting or a claim that it was excessive, that you can demonstrate that you provided reasonable restraints. Um, And those are really the the big two. And the third is it's instructional. Um, The fact is that most lawyers, even today, even, you know, a dozen plus years, after I wrote this exemplar, still don't really know how to go about preserving or advising their clients to preserve a myriad forms of electronically stored information uh, so that they remain reliable and complete, as you well know in your work. Indeed. Well, well Craig, I, kn- I know you, you already talked a little bit about that it probably wasn't a good idea that they lifted so many <laughs> so many words of your, your original preservation letter. Uh, and, and copy them. But tell us a little bit about a little more about how, how the lawyers should really go about drafting a, the, a good preservation letter. You've tapped into one of the great dilemmas of, of my work for many years. 
on the one hand, I abhor forms. I have people who just grab a form and use it blindly, you know, I, I just hate that. On the other hand, after many years of sort of banging my head against the wall of trying to get people to understand how to do something and then and then do it in a way I regard as, as competent, I found that you can get a lot more people to do something if you give them a form than if you try to instruct them how to do it on their own. We are, all of us, inherently lazy. So I do think it's important that you seek out uh, language that will help you get to the point. One of the art and the science of electronically stored information and e-discovery is using precise language. Lawyers understand how important it is to use precise language when drafting a contract or a petition. But if you're in the IT business, things mean something different. There are peculiar terms with specific meanings and you don't want to use loose language in, in either quarter. So I do think it's important to seek out language that hopefully has been drafted by someone who knows what things are called, at least contemporaneous with the time in which you're writing. I, I don't think we want to speak about um, you know, spreadsheets as being, being Lotus 1, 2, 3 anymore. Uh, but I do think it's important that you reach out for forms. And then here's the key. Don't use language in a form if you don't understand what it means okay that's that's the least we have to bring that, you know but you laugh john but but it's, it's so true oh, i hear you i i guarantee you that most of the people in their in their definitions in their requests for production as well as in their preservation letters are are talking about things they don't understand one of my favorite examples in the definition of documents that floats around in request for production is the term phonobelts. Most of the people who are defining phonobelts as a form of document have never seen what a phonobelt <laughs> is and don't know what it is. They'll talk about telegrams and they've never received a telegram in their life. I think it's the same thing. If you're going to be giving my litany of forms and locations and methodologies, if you're going to be adopting it at least do your client the courtesy of understanding what you're asking for. Because when you say, I want the metadata, and somebody says, what metadata? And you say, the metadata. <laughs> and they say, but which metadata? And you say, I don't know. I just have a form that says, give me the <laughs> metadata. That's not good lawyering. That doesn't give you credibility. And that doesn't serve the court system, the clients, or anyone else. When you're asking for things and perhaps generating enormous expenses for production of and preservation of material that you haven't the slightest idea what it is or how to use it. But that, that follows to, towards the, uh, the, the rule changes, too, towards technical competence, doesn't it, Craig? It does. And we have unfortunately failed to really define what technical competence is. California has done a pretty good job setting out nine skill sets required for technical competence when it comes to electronic discovery, but even then they are more aspirational than they are specific. Where is the core curriculum that every lawyer must understand to, to label themselves competent in e-discovery? Where are the examinations that are going to assure um, all of us associated with the legal system that those who claim competence can actually demonstrate competence? I can tell you this, I'm not aware of any bar in the United States that is has a, a section testing on 
e-discovery skills. And I think that hopefully is not a long way off. So in in this preservation letter, um, tell us a little bit more about what it should discuss. And I'm particularly interested in how broader or specific you think it, it should be. Um, I know some people feel differently on that issue. You know, it, it's hard for lawyers to resist the impulse to ask for anything and everything and any and all. This is language we've been taught to use out of fear and out of ignorance for a long time. But that kind of boil the ocean approach to preservation plays right into the hands of an opponent trying to resist preservation. If you tell someone you must preserve in a manner that essentially requires you to shut down your computers and lay aside your phones and get off the internet and shut the business, if you were to really try legitimately to comply with the demand, you might as well tell them they don't have to preserve anything. And and that's why I think it's important that you really pick your battles in preservation. If, If email is your target, if a mobile device's text is your target, don't just try to get them to preserve every instance and every bit and byte. Make sure you single out those sources that you have reason to believe are most likely to be implicated in the communications and transactions that form the basis of the claims in the lawsuit. And that's very hard. It's very hard for us to to choose one thing over something else. And unless you understand both the computing environment of the target of, of your opponent, as well as the way they were used, it's challenging to be able to make those wise choices early on. But it's important you do, because judges are going to ultimately be asked to consider whether or not someone should have done what you asked them to do and done it the way you asked them to do it. And they're going to look at whether what you asked for was reasonable in scope, it was affordable in cost, and proportionate to the needs of the case. And if the answer is, this person was surgical, this request focused on the things that the absence of which now is so damaging to the ability of one side or the other to prove their case, that's going to prove to your advantage. So a little goes a long way and less can be more with respect to demands for preservation. So Craig, who should be getting these preservation letters and and, and when? Well, would I be any kind of lawyer if I didn't say it depends, John? <laughs> depends, by the way, is the is the is my new line of adult diapers for lawyers. Uh, but uh, it depends. That's it. So when you see that, it depends. That's uh, that's that's what you're going to be buying. Now, it depends on this. You're often providing this notice when there isn't a lawyer in the case, and with a corporation, you can perhaps send a notice to. Uh, general counsel's office and and know that it's going to get to a lawyer. But in many other instances, you have to make a decision. Do I send it just to an individual uh, potential defendant, a named defendant? Do I send it to an employee who was involved in it? Do I send it to um, a, a management level, supervisory level person? Do I send it to third parties? Uh, people I know, lawyers, doctors, uh, accountants, whoever it may be that act as third-party custodians of of data for the uh, potential party. These are decisions that have to be made uh, in terms of timing and in terms of scope based upon the peculiarities of the case. Everything should be, as I say, custom-tailored 
to the needs of the case. Letters, emails, pretty cheap. So if when in doubt, more notice is usually better than less notice. More people recognizing the obligation to preserve and more people preserving when one may choose to destroy is very likely the smarter way to go about it. I would add to that there that there are going to be rare circumstances where sending a preservation notice may serve as a blueprint for a person's attempt to destroy data. So you have to weigh whether being very specific about certain types of inculpatory data that exist is more likely to trigger spoliation, in which case you need to anticipate that potential for spoliation and lay the groundwork for being able to demonstrate what happened, what was done, and that it was done with the mindset to destroy information and prevent its discovery in the case later on. All good points. Before we move on to our last segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today our topic is President Trump's Lawyers and Craig Ball's The Perfect Preservation Letter. Our guest is Craig Ball, a Texas lawyer and renowned e-discovery and digital forensics expert. So Craig... When you receive one of these marvelous preservation letters, what should a lawyer or litigant do? The most important thing to do with one of these letters is to acknowledge it and advise those who have sent it those things that you are going to do that have been requested, and much more importantly, those things you are not going to do. Because what you do not want to afford your opponent, if you are the recipient of a preservation demand, is the ability to argue that your silence was a tacit agreement that you were going to do these things. And all of a sudden, you can say, Your Honor, I would have come to court, I would have forced um, an order to preserve these things, but having given them explicit notice and told them how to do it and what my expectations were, I had ample reason to believe they would act on my demand. So it's important you say what you're going to do and and say what you're not going to do. And if you are so inclined, make counterproposals or offer to do certain things if you shift the cost for saying. I think that there needs to be skin in the game on both sides. A preservation demand should not be made in a callous way so as to prompt needless expense of large amounts of money and time. And at the same time, the duty to preserve is genuine and the needs of an, of a litigant may be unique enough or the, the person demanding preservation may have enough of a clear idea of what they need and, and where the evidence resides that it would be foolish to ignore 
the specifics of a, a well and carefully drafted preservation demand. It's, it's important to use it as a springboard for immediate, clear communication and as appropriate cooperation. Well, well Craig, let's, let's leave the preservation letter topic and jump over to something else uh, and talk about smartphones. What's your thoughts? Can a litigants preserve them on their own? Absolutely. And that's what I've been writing about most lately. You know, Jonathan, you're a forensic examiner, so you more than most appreciate what a huge impact the efforts to lock down modern smartphones has had on forensics when it comes to these devices. Mm-hmm. The kinds of things we can do and take for granted with regard to computers in terms of bringing back deleted information uh, and accessing unallocated clusters and the places where forensic data hides uh, has been largely eliminated in an environment like the iPhone to the point that we can look to the FBI's dust up with Apple and the San Bernardino terrorist case as further proof of even some of the best forensic skilled persons in the world can't get into this data. And and I think that the lesson, the takeaway from that is a lot of what we have done over the last decade in making these smartphone devices the exclusive province of people like you or me, that they only get touched by the white-coated technician <laughs> with specialized tools and so forth, is is no longer really that applicable in e-discovery if it ever was. In e-discovery, we don't dig down always to the hidden and the forensically significant. We're trying to get the low-hanging fruit, the day-to-day usage of such things as messaging, the accessible geolocation data when that's relevant. And we're fortunate in that the methodologies that are available to custodians to back up and protect their own data are largely sufficient for purposes of preserving that same data in electronic discovery. And so I've written some articles that show low cost, no cost, quick methodologies whereby you can advise your client to preserve that and they won't have to give up their phone. They won't have to lose possession of their phone at all while they do that. And so crucially, John, these are methods that don't enable the holder of the phone, the custodian of the data to alter the data in the form of the preservation. It, it's, it's a monolithic enough approach that it doesn't allow the party to be selective in that which is preserved and that which is not preserved. Now, it creates some issues about ultimate disposition of the data. How do we divide the privileged and the private from the discoverable? And that's an, another discussion. But right now, there are low-cost, no-cost, quick ways to preserve the contents of cell phones for e-discovery that are both rich with integrity mm-hmm. and don't require you to dispossess a party of their phone. A crucial, crucial thing here. Well, I think you probably uh, garnered a lot of attention from a lot of folks with that, that answer alone. Uh, not to say the rest of the uh, podcast, which was wonderful. Thank you, Craig, for, for joining us today. I am truly sorry that our audience missed the intermission where we discussed you're getting the apple pie out of the oven because that was some of the funniest chatter. But uh, I did enjoy the beginning very, very much. And thank you for always being so quick-witted, um, so erudite, and, and so generous with your time. I, we really appreciate your joining us. Well, thank you, Sharon. And thank you, John. And I hope anyone who would like to 
learn more about these things might stop by my blog, ballinyourcourt.com. Thank you both for having me today. You bet. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and cybersecurity services at SENSEIENT.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes. I have a pie in the oven. I was baking a pie, um, and I, I just, it's just <laughs> it's time to take it off. I bet that's the first time that anybody's ever had to stop one of these podcasts because they were baking a pie and had to pull it from the oven. This is what my life has become. <laughs>